Hello, everybody, and welcome to this episode of Sports Legends of the Carolinas. I'm your host, Scott Fowler, sports columnist for the Charlotte Observer, where I've worked since 1994. And as always in this podcast, I'm traveling across the Carolinas, seeking out some of my very favorite sports legends and asking them to tell the real stories behind their rise to iconic status. Now, for this episode of Sports Legends, we're inside Bank of America Stadium in Charlotte, home of the Carolina Panthers, who are about to begin their 2023 season. And our location is fitting because our legend is someone who starred in this very stadium for years. That would be Thomas Davis, the Panthers' all-time leading tackler and the only player in NFL history to successfully come back from three ACL surgeries on the very same knee. With time again, looking long. This one is picked off. Thomas Davis gets that interception. Thomas Davis was named the NFL's Walter Payton Man of the Year for his community service in 2014, the only Panther to ever win that award. He made the Pro Bowl three times, and all of them came after those three ACL surgeries. He played 14 years for the Panthers from 2005 to 2018, including suiting up for the Super Bowl with a broken arm. He then played for two years elsewhere before returning to Charlotte to sign a one-day contract in March 2021 and retire as a Panther. Thomas, welcome to the show. I appreciate you. Thank you for having me. First of all, let's start with this. Uh, So we're about to start another football season. What do you miss about playing and what do you not miss about playing? (laughs) Uh, I would really say, I tell people this, the only thing I really miss is getting paid every week. (laughs) And I say that because I feel like I gave everything I had to the game while I was playing. You know, that's what I wanted to do when I was playing. I wanted to walk away from the game with no regrets. I don't want to feel like every single day that I woke up that I wish I was still on the field. So I wanted to give everything that I had to it while I had the opportunity to play. And, you know, now that I have the opportunity to sit back and watch my son and my nephews go through the process. You know, they're in high school right now. I get to take the time to just really enjoy the process that they're going through. And for me, that's special. What sort of fan are you as a, you know, as a, a former player? I mean, are you calm, cool, and collected? Or are you out there yelling uh, instructions? Yeah, nothing, nothing has ever been calm, cool, and collective about me um, <laughs> when it comes to the game of football. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm a fanatic. You know, I'm one of those fanatics. I I follow the game with a passion. I watch it with a passion. I love every aspect of the game of football, whether it's on the high school level, whether it's on the college level, or whether it's the NFL game. When you were playing, what was your favorite part of game day? Just being able to go out and take the field with my brothers, man, with my teammates. You know, just seeing how 11 men at one time could collectively come together to get the job done just to watch us go out and put a game plan together and execute it at the highest level, that that was special to me. I want to get into your background uh, growing up in Georgia, and you're wearing a Georgia shirt today, So, uh, and we'll talk a little bit of college as well. But before we do all that, put on your analyst hat for a second. Tell me what you think about this year's uh, Panthers team where you think they may finish and, and what they need to to break this losing streak of uh, non-playoff years? You know, I think they just need to, to be consistent. You know, I, I feel like this roster is equipped to get the job done. I love what Coach Wright has done with the coaching staff. 
I feel like they have a rock star coaching staff and um, guys that these players are going to love playing for. And it's just all about these players making a commitment, you know, making a commitment to maximize their ability every single day. And that starts by practicing a certain way. You got to go out and you have to, and I tell guys this all the time, you have to make practice harder than Sundays. And guys kind of look at me and say like how, with this look of how do you do that? Well, you find somebody that pushes you every single day to be the best version of yourself. And you find an offensive guy on the other side that you can push every single day to be the best version of themselves that when the competition starts in practice, every single day is like a game. That's when it becomes like you hear the saying, if you find something that you love doing, you'll never work a day in your life. That's when it becomes that. When you go out and you make it that kind of special moment, I think that's what football was about for me, and that's what I was able to do. You know, playing alongside John Beeson, playing with Luke Keekley, playing against Cam Newton, those are the guys that I would point to first and foremost that every single day they push me to be the best version of myself. Mm-hmm. I remember even early as you were very young and hadn't even fully converted to safety uh, from safety to linebacker yet, you and Beeson running sprints after practice. Uh, he was a fast guy too. And people forget about him some because they think of you so much with Luke. Yeah, man. He, he, was, he was very, very vital, you know, to my transition from safety to linebacker because you know, I was still making that transition even once he got drafted. It was two, three years into the process. And, you know, just watching the way that he worked, watching his understanding of the linebacker position and the work that we did off the field, like you just talked about it, the extra reps that we put in and to making sure that our conditioning was top, was at the very top. Because when we got into games, there was nobody that was going to outlast us. You know, I think that that's where it really all started in, you know, the competition between me and Beast. But it was a competition where we would push each other to be the best version of ourselves, but never a competition to where we didn't like the other person, where it became one of those things. It was truly like a brotherhood where we just loved going out every single day. And, you know, Beast ended up tearing his Achilles. A game later, I ended up tearing my ACL. So we were actually in there rehabbing together, pushing each other during that process. So, man, it, it was a special bond that we developed during those times that, you know, still are with us to this day. I remember, and later in your career, jumping around a little bit, but you and Cam Newton had some very entertaining practice sessions. Um, yeah. Tell me about those and sort of how you guys jawed at each other and, and really pushed each other a you lot. Know, you know, it, it was one of those things with Cam every single day. It, it kind of started with the Georgia-Auburn rivalry um, with him being an Auburn Tiger, me being a Georgia Bulldog, and it just kind of translated over onto the field. I'm not even listening to what's going on. I'm just trying to get Cam ready for practice. You didn't get me ready. I got an auto starter. It'd be automatic. Just my presence alone changes his whole mood. Look at him. Both of us were extremely competitive. We were guys that never wanted to lose a single rep at any point. And if I want to rep against him or if we want to rep against him, I'm letting him hear about it. I'm letting him know every single time and vice versa. Every single time he was able to win a rep, he's going to let me know every single time that he won that rep. And what that does, it 
makes you work harder. It pushes you to be better. And it causes everyone around you to have to step their game up because they don't want to see me lose to him and the guys around him, they didn't want to see him lose to me. So I think Coach Rivera was the perfect coach for us at that time because he understood that. He understood and he saw what that brought out of Cam. He understood and he saw what that brought out of me. So he would encourage it. Mm. Coach McDermott wasn't a huge fan of it, but Coach <laughs> Rivera was a component of it. So he was always pushing us. Hey, when I would, Coach McDermott would kind of shush me, Coach Rivera would egg me on like, hey, don't get quiet. Let's go. So that was one of the things that, you know, that just made practice fun. It made us compete harder. And it was never a time where, me and Cam were at, at odds where we you had never had the Josh Norman uh, no, fight with never, Cam. Never the Josh Norman treatment. We <laughs> always had a mutual respect for each uh. other. We understood that. You know the the jawing and the and the competitive disagreements that we oh, had in practice right. yeah. were simply something that we had in practice. When we went into that locker room, it was it was cohesiveness. It was a brotherhood, and that's what it was about. There's nothing that we're gonna take off this field and take into the locker room and beyond that. It's just all about motivating each other. No matter what we said to each other, and we said some pretty harsh things at times, but it was all a motivational tool and something that we still even do to this day. We still call each other talking trash and um, just doing things to check in on each other, man, to make sure that, you know, we're in a good space right now. Yeah. Yeah. I miss those. Uh, The the current Panthers could use a couple more of those sorts of rivalries. I've been trying to get Shaq to step up and and find somebody over there to do it with, but Uh it seemed like, um, Deuce has been the only guy that's been talking back to the defense, Deuce. him and Burns. <laughs> yeah, right. Bryce Young, that's nah, not his gig. I, I can't see that being Bryce thing yet. Yeah. But, you know, he has it in him, though. You can see from time yeah. to time he has he has some fire in him. Mm-hmm. I got to witness it when I went to practice, and I saw J.C. Blitz and told Bryce, he like, hey, I, I would have lit you up on that play. And Bryce kind of didn't just sit back in the septic. He was like, well, do it then. You know, <laughs> if you were going to do it, then do it, knowing – Full well that you can't touch the quarterback in, right, in, right, in the NFL. Right. So <laughs> we'll be back right after this. Welcome back. What are you mostly up to these days? Where, where do you? Uh, I know you're busy. I've just been trying to make sure, like you said, that I just stay busy. You know, you never want to get stagnant as a person, as a former player. As a father, as a husband, you never want to get stagnant in the things that you're doing in your life because you can find yourself in a hole. You can find yourself um, dealing with some depression. For me, so for me, from day one, once football was done, I have four kids and I have some bonus kids now that that are in my household. So it's never a dull moment around that household. They always keep me busy. And, um, to have four 15-year-old kids living in my house and then wow. another 16-year-old kid yeah. along with my 13-year-old daughter. And I have my 21-year-old daughter who's graduated from the University of Kentucky and now into grad school at Vanderbilt University. And I have a son that's entering his sophomore year at UNCC Charlotte. So to be able to see my kids grow up and, and just 
going through the process right now of recruitment with the 15 year olds and, and, and just watching them um, experience some of the things that I got to experience at their age and some of the things I didn't get to experience at that age. It's just been fun um, to always making sure I'm keeping them grounded, making sure they understand, you know, with whom much is given, much is required. So if you get to a point where you start gaining recognition, you start receiving scholarship offers, you got to do the things that you did to get those to keep them. So um, that's one thing that I'm always preaching to them. And I know a lot of times they may get tired of hearing me say those things, but I'm never going to stop. I'm never going to let up on them because I think complacency is one of the biggest things that can cause kids at their age right now to become failures. Mm -hmm. And I'm not going to let that happen to them. You're not going to let them be entitled. Never. You certainly weren't. Tell me about uh, your upbringing in Shelman, Georgia. I had to work for every single thing that I had all the way down to, you know, my scholarship to the University of Georgia. It didn't come to late in the process. Mm -hmm. Coach Van Gorder came to see another kid, stopped in, watched me practice basketball. He didn't even know that I was going to be there that day. Coach Garner, who was still on the Georgia staff from the previous staff, told him to stop in and talk to the coach at Randolph Clay about the kid, Thomas Davis. Well, he stops in to talk to the coach. We in our basketball season. After the practice, he watched me practice basketball. He said, look, I don't know where I would play you at right now. He said, but I want to offer you to come play for me at Georgia. None of the kids that I watched had the speed, the burst, the athleticism that I just saw all in one package. He's like, and I want you to come play with me. And, I, and you know, at that moment and that time, I didn't fully understand how to process it because the previous staff was recruiting me, and I had Coach Doug Marone, who was the recruiter at that time, tell me, don't worry about the stuff that you're hearing on the outside, about the staff getting fired. Our job is fine. We've been assured. And they got fired the next week. <laughs> oh, so I'm kind of – hesitant on like listening to what coaches are telling me at this point but I'm excited but the excitement wasn't showing through at the moment so coach Van Gorda didn't really know how I was taking the news but I was I mean I was smiling and and sharing it with anybody that would listen to me that I had gotten that offer that I wanted so badly to go to the University of Georgia and uh, just knowing on signing day that the two schools that I had the opportunity to sign with was either Georgia or Grambling I'm always telling the story. I'm going to wear it. I was going to wear the G one way or the other. <laughs> that was the two. Wow. Yes. Um, who raised you? No, I was raised. It was a community raising seemed like, um, but mostly it was my grandmother and my mom, you know, just grew up in that single parent household and um, spent a lot of time with my grandmother, learned a lot of the values um, of hard work that I learned from her, you know, just watching her every single day get up and go to work. And and then on Saturdays, you know, just one of the things, one of the fondest memories that I have of my grandmother was every single Saturday she would get up early in the morning and take her laundry bag, a black trash bag, which was her laundry bag, mm -hmm. on her back and literally walk about 25, 30 minutes into the into uptown to go to the laundromat to wash her clothes. And, you know, you don't really fully understand the the magnitude of that or, you know, just not having a car to be able to drive or not even really knowing how to drive because I've never, I've never saw my grandmother drive a car um, when I was a young kid. And, you know, just to be in a position right now that I'm in knowing where I came from, man. 
I think you told me one time we, we were speaking about maybe 10 years ago. Uh, this was prior to maybe one of the Walter Payton Award, but uh, you said, I think the quote was, there were at least two Christmases where I didn't get a single gift, I think. Can you sort of explain that a little? You know, just growing up in poverty, growing up, you know, with a mom who struggled to raise two kids, you know, um, grew up with government assistant. And there were times where you just you couldn't make ends meet. And you don't fully understand those things when you're a young kid. You don't understand the dynamic or why things happen or uh, you're not really privy to, you know, why you wake up on Christmas and you don't have anything because you you believe in the whole Santa Claus phase and you feel like, you know, Santa is going to provide everybody with a gift. And when you wake up and you don't have anything, you start to feel like, okay, the whole dynamic was I wasn't good enough this year. I was a bad kid. You know, I didn't do the things that I need to do to receive a gift. And, you know, that was part of the reason why I started my foundation, because I knew that there were a lot of moms, a lot of kids that were going through some of the same struggles. Um, there were a lot of kids that were waking up on Christmas Day feeling the same way that I felt, like they weren't good enough or they didn't get the job done. And I don't want kids to have to go through that or experience that hurt or um, feeling like they're not adequate or they're not good enough. And you know, with my foundation, we've been able to provide and, and give back to so many families, man. And, you know, that's probably the biggest thing that I look back on my career that I'm proud of the most. Really? Mm. Defending Dreams Foundation? Is Absolutely. That, yeah. Thomas Davis Defending Dreams Foundation. You know, we started in 2008 and it was really one of those things, you know, I just wanted to give back. I wanted to have a positive impact on this community was how it started. And then you know, I wanted to be able to have that same impact on my community back in Shelman. And then, you know, with Kelly being from Greenville, South Carolina, I wanted to be able to have that impact on her community, the one that raised her to, to allow her to become the young lady that she had become. So we just started giving back to those three communities and just trying to have as big of an impact as we could, whether it was, you know, doing back to school drives, Thanksgiving dinners whether it was Christmas giveaways or just trying to even the playing field for kids from uh, providing them with opportunities to participate in sporting events that they their parents may not have been able to provide or pay for for them. Yeah, I would commend y'all, whoever's listening, to look for look at that. Thomas Davis Defending Dreams Foundation, unbelievable work, and they've been in the Charlotte community for, like, as Thomas mentions, I mean, 15 years. I mean, you guys, it's no fly-by-night operation. They have helped thousands, literally thousands of, uh, of people. You mentioned, Thomas, I watched last night uh, to prepare for this, your retirement uh, speech as you were, as you had retired here in March 2021. And I, I think there was one part I wasn't quite clear about, so maybe you can explain it here, but you said something about that you lost a brother early, and I didn't know if that what the story behind that. Football has, has been something that um, that has allowed me to just bring in uh, a ton of brothers. A ton of brothers. And and the reason why I, I speak on brothers is and why that's so important to me, because at a very young age I lost my brother. Yeah, so when when I was a young kid, um my mom had a third child and his name was Darius. 
And I, you know, you, you're a young kid, so you don't fully understand the dynamic. You don't know what certain things are. I didn't understand what SIDS was at the time. It was sudden infant death syndrome. And um, that that's how I lost my younger brother. And I think as the years went on, it started to affect me the more I started to understand what it was. Cause I, at, when it happened, I don't fully understand. And I didn't, my sister, we didn't fully understand. We was just young. We just know that we just knew at that moment that our brother wasn't there anymore. How old were you at that time? I was, think I was like eight or nine years old at the time. Yeah, way too young to understand. Right. Way too young to fully understand or grasp the concept of, of what had just happened. But like I said, as the years went on and you start to learn all of the things that I've learned about it and how preventable it really was, it, it just it's sad. Yeah. It really is sad to know that he could potentially still be here right now. Mm-hmm. If you know, you just made a few steps or you took a few extra precautions. The, right. di- the dynamic and how different life really could have been. Mm. Oh, I'm sorry. I never knew that. To go to your playing career a little bit, uh, tell me a little bit about how long did it take you to to understand at Georgia that you were one of the top athletes in America? Thomas Davis is going to come on the blitz and drill the ball carrier. Watch him right here. Watch him come in and knock the ball loose from Justin Vincent. It's a run blitz. Nobody picks him up. He knocks the ball loose, and Georgia gets the football in good field position. You know, so when I first went into Georgia, being one of the last guys given a scholarship, there were a, there was a lot of doubt in my mind because I start to feel like, you know, why wasn't I highly recruited? Why didn't all of the schools that wanted all of my teammates want me? Did I do I not really belong here? And instantly from the first opportunity that we had to go and work out as a group, my mindset was I'm going to show everybody why I belong. So we were, we at Georgia, we used to, when we started our off season workout, we would work out and run from literally run from the Butts Mirror building, which was probably a mile to the stadium. <laughs> and then we would run the stadium steps, like oh. the whole half of the stadium steps. And my goal that day on the first day we did it was to be not the first incoming freshman. My goal that day was to be the first overall player out of all of the guys mm-hmm. because I wanted to show everybody that I belonged that day. And I almost accomplished that goal, but it was one guy, Jermaine Phillips, who played for a while in Tampa. Um, I didn't understand or didn't know at the time. They called Flip the Baby Kingin. And I didn't understand why they called Flip that, but Flip was one of those guys that could run forever. He was a senior, and I finished second that day to Flip. But in doing that, I gained the respect of all of the older guys that day because they knew that, you know, this kid, he he, com- he comes in and he comes to work. Ready. So it was that day that also allowed me to understand and know that I did belong there. It was going to be truly up to me how – those three to four years turned out. So I went from being the last guy they gave that scholarship to, to putting in the work, to being the first guy out of all of those guys to get drafted into the NFL. Wow. So I 
tell people all the time, it's not about where you start. Nobody on the outside can define who you are as a person, who you are as a player. It's truly up to you. You commit yourself, you put the work in, you can become, you can accomplish and become anything that you want to become. Is Georgia going to win a third straight national championship? We're definitely going to try it. I can definitely <laughs> tell you that. We're definitely going to. I know Kirby Smart really well, and I know, you know, his goal, his mindset. He's going to come out. He's going to say, "We're going to take it one game at a time. We're not focusing on the championship." But his goal is to win a third championship in a row, and he's done a phenomenal job of recruiting and and really putting good coaches in place to get these guys ready. And it's a true indication of how ready these players are coming out of Georgia. 25 players drafted in the last two years is phenomenal. That is a phenomenal number. And obviously it's a record, but for him to just be able to put that many guys and not just get them drafted and say, oh, we got them drafted, but getting them drafted high in the first three, four, five rounds I think that really speaks to the work that he's done recruiting and the work that he's done as a coach in preparing and getting these guys NFL ready. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. So you were drafted 14th overall in 2005. We talked a little bit about early uh, when you and, and Beeson were, were getting it together. Let's talk a little bit about the ACLs because you, uh, that is one part of your history. Um, three straight. How close were you to retiring after the third one? A lot of you guys know, um, how my career went, man. Um, 2009, 10 and 11, I tore my ACL three years in a row. Listen, I, I literally, after that third one happened, I literally walked off that field thinking that that would be my last time ever in the NFL uniform because I had been in the league long enough to know the business side of this game. And you you just don't get those opportunities. You don't find teams that's willing to stick stick with guys through what I had just gone through. And it wasn't really until we had that meeting with me, Marty Herney, Coach Rivera, who was the newly hired coach at the time, and, and Mr. Richardson. We brought Ryan Vermillion in and Pat Connor had an input on it. And, you know, their message to Mr. Richardson was, it's time to turn the page. You know, they were convinced that my knee just wasn't going to hold up. All of them? Not all of them. Mm. One person in that room was convinced that if I was willing to put myself through it, he was willing to give me another shot. He believed in me that much. And... Every single time that, you know, even all the way up until his passing, when I would go and and just sit down with Mr. Richardson, he would tell me, I'm so glad I didn't listen to them. And, you know, my reply to him was, I'm glad you didn't listen to him either, because (laughs) I literally had the best years of my career after going through all of that hardship. You know, 2009 was a very rocky year for me. Um, that was the year that I found out that I had a heart condition that I never, ever knew I had anything going on with my heart. Mm. In North Carolina, we had a bunch of kids that were passing away um, or they had passed away suddenly with heart conditions that they never knew they had. So they started the Heart of a Champion in 2009 to get kids um, heart screenings, free heart screenings um, with the local cardiologists here. And they 
I thought that at that moment that there was an absolutely great thing that they were doing before I ever even knew I had anything going on. So I, they asked for players to come volunteer, you know, to get the kids excited about it. So me doing the philanthropic work that I was doing, I wanted to go out. I wanted to be the one that got the kids excited about coming out, getting the screening done. I lay on the table, get the screening done. And the doctor said, hmm, something you never want to hear a doctor say when you lay down to have a screening done. I'm like, what? Like, what? Like, what's going on? Like, I've played at the highest level. My stress has been stressed to the highest level in college doing mat drills, in training camp at Wofford, practicing two times a day early on in my career. So it's like there couldn't possibly be anything wrong with me. Well, there was. You know, that's when I found out that I was born with an abnormal coronary artery. And everybody that has what I have, you either find out through the testing that they were doing for those kids that day, or you find out from an autopsy when you've already passed away. So to hear that coming from a doctor, and now they're telling me I go from being perfectly healthy to we need we got to do open heart surgery on you. Like you got to have open heart surgery and you got to have it soon. Mm. So my mind is blown in this moment because I'm like, what? You were just trying to psych up like the I'm kids. I'm literally trying to get the kids excited. And now the God. thing that y'all are looking for in them, you found in me. It, I mean, I think in that moment, it really showed me, you know, how intentional God is with the things that he does and how amazing he is because the power of prayer is so real. And I learned in that moment because I literally went from being perfectly healthy to now I need open heart surgery to a week later to them making the determination after sending it to Emory, to sending it to the Cleveland Clinic, to all of these different um, heart surgeons that if something was going to happen to me, it would have already happened Hmm. because I had been stressed to the highest level of stress. And um, the way and what happens when this happens, because I have two ventricles that are operating on the same side, when you're supposed to have a right and a left the way the, the 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 thing wraps around, if my heart expands too much, it could compress the the valve and cut off circulation, and that's how you die. And they told me if it was going to happen to you with all of the, the, the stress level that your body has been through, like I said, it would have already happened. They just recommended me doing a stress test every single year for the rest of my career. So I never knew that. A lot of people didn't know that. Mm. Like, and I never really talked about it, but what that did, it made me approach the 2009 season completely different than any other season. Because in my mindset, you just never know what is going to be that's going to cause you to never be able to play again. So the realization was if my heart had, my chest had been open, my career was over with. So... I approached the 2009 season with, I'm going to give everything. And at that point, you know, I was leading the Panthers in most statistical categories before I tore my ACL in New Orleans. Mm. And I, I I remember the play like it was yesterday, literally rerouting number two, going to get into the flat and literally just feeling it pop in my knee mm. and go to the sideline and I'm trying to get back in the game. Like the game is on the line. We're in the fourth quarter. And I'm trying to get back in the game. And I think at that moment, our trainers 
through the Lockman test, they knew what it was. And I'm like, no, I, I, I'm good. Like, I can go back. And they were like, all right, you're good. So I run forward. I'm like, I'm good. It was like, now, now move lateral. And there was a lateral movement that really let me know. And, you know, the MRI confirmed it, torn ACL. And, you know, instantly I'm like, man, contract year. Like, why is this happening to me right now? Like, everything was a why me. And, you know, I'm... That approach changed to, all right, we got to get the surgery. Let's get it done. Um, so we, it was the off season going into 2010, and we're in we're in OTA's mini count process. So I'm six months removed from ACL surgery. So I go out. First off, we try this new procedure with that ACL tear. They was like, hey, this new procedure just came about where they – Use your hamstring versus taking your patella. It helps limit patella tendonitis. And, you know, your hamstring is a much stronger tendon to use, which I don't recommend for any athlete with speed. Don't touch your hamstrings if you are a fast guy and, like, you make a living off of being fast because I had hamstring issues for the rest of my career after that. So. You don't want to touch the hamstring because what I've learned is any kind of hamstring injury, any kind of quad injury, those things make you more susceptible to injuring your ACL because quad strength and hamstring strength is what stabilizes your knee. So we go out, I rehab, get the knee back strong. The Panthers at that moment, they used to, when Coach Fox was here, we used to go through like a combine process every year. Like they would test our 40, they would test our bench, like all of those things that you that. do at the yeah, 40. Okay. Yeah. We did that every single year. We did the vertical jump and with the 5, 10, 5, all of that stuff. So I went back out in the offseason of 2010 and I ran a 4, 4, 40 again. Wow. Six and a half months removed from ACL surgery. And they were like, okay, he's back. He's strong. He's ready to go. So Literally, either the next day or the next week, they were like, all right, we're going to put you, now we're going to escalate it. We're going to put you in some linebacker drills. Well, at six and a half months, nobody should be doing any kind of twisting and turning on an ACL that's recovered, that's, that's recovering, especially without a knee brace. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was my downfall at the moment. I didn't have a knee brace on. Because we was, they thought that it was more of an isolated situation where you not, you're in a more of a controlled environment. And as soon as I made the move, because I'm not gonna half do anything. So if I go out, I'm gonna do it. And literally, I went out and I made a a, a twisting movement on that knee, and I felt the same pain in my knee that I felt in New Orleans. And I told them, I'm like, no, I just tore my knee up again. It's one of those feelings that if you ever have it, you can't mistake it for anything else. I knew exactly what it was. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we go in, we get the MRI done, torn ACL, right in a contract year going into the lockout. So I'm like, man, so I missed the whole 2010 season. Lockout ends, we get a contract done. So... I mean, it was a it was a nice contract at the time, but it was still one that protected the team versus me getting injured again. So, <laughs> go ahead. 
uh, rehab that second ACL, start the 2011 season. First game of the year, we play Arizona. Beast get hurt in Arizona that first game. Tears his Achilles. Next game, we get ready to play the defending champ, Green Bay Packers. We're beating them. I come out holding Beast jersey up. You know, just lost my brother. And, you know, I'm going to go out. We're going to play for Beast, and and we're going to win this game. We were winning the game. I go make crazy hard hit on the running back um, for Green Bay at the time. And instead of me wrapping up and taking him to the ground, you know, I, I tried to, like, tried to like really smoke him right <laughs> and I bounced off of him and one of our D linemen um, was running to the ball at the time and as soon as I bounced off of him his leg hit me right in my knee and I another experimental thing I didn't have on a regular Donjoy knee brace that has always protected players they had this new knee brace that wasn't as bulky that would allow you to still have some athleticism. Well, it allowed my knee to give more than it should have gave and tore my ACL again for the third time. So walking off that field, like feeling that, like tried to go back into the game. Maybe it's not the ACL because I had a knee brace on, but then I tried to go back into the game with the lateral movement again. I Like you knew something was off. So when I leave that field, that last time, I'm like, man, this is it. But then we go, like I talked about earlier, we had this meeting, man, and Mr. Richardson told me, if you're willing to put yourself through it, I'm going to give you an opportunity. And as a player in that moment, I went from the lowest of lows feeling like my career was over to being told that we're going to give you a chance. So that's all I needed. And I go see Dr. Andrews because I had gotten the surgery done here in Charlotte with the team doctor the first couple of times. And I did what the team wanted me to do, right? Mm. You let the team doctor do it so they can keep an eye on you and not saying that it was anybody's fault. But I wanted to do something different this last time. If this is my final opportunity, I want to do it my way. So if it's somebody that's supposed to be the best doing it, then that's who I want to operate sure. on my last opportunity. So I go down to Pensacola to see Dr. Andrews and – Dr. Andrews, man, if you've ever met him, man, he's <laughs> he's a funny guy. Dr. Andrews told me, he said, I'm like, Doc, so what do you think? Like, this is my third one. Am I done? He was like, like, I'm not doing surgery on you for you to go sit on your ass. <laughs> like, if I'm going to do surgery on you, then You're gonna I play. think you can go play. Uh-huh. So he, he does the surgery, and he, like, literally dangles, like, the ligament that he took out of my <laughs> left knee. So I had surgery on both knees. He took the oh. patella from my left knee to fix my right knee. Really? And literally before I left Pensacola, it was two days after the surgery, I was walking. And I sent RV and, and Sherm a video of me walking before I even left Pensacola and I'm like, man, I'm determined. I'm, I'm, I'm ready to be the first player to ever do this. And you know, I, the whole time I'm feeling like the team has confidence in me. They believe in me. Um, they're giving me this opportunity. So I get invited, you know, to come here um, after that whole rehab process had already begun. I get invited to be one of the players to come to the draft party that we had that year. And oh yeah. We go. I think we, I know where this is going. We go, and I'm sitting there for the draft party, and 
I'm excited. You know, we're out here on this field with the fans and the Carolina Panthers select linebacker Luke Kuechly from Boston College. And I'm like, what? With the ninth pick in the 2012 NFL Draft, the Carolina Panthers select Luke Kuechly, linebacker, Boston College. So I'm like, wait, linebacker? We got John Beeson, we got James Anderson, who they had just signed to a contract, and we got a three-time torn ACL player, and now we got a first-round rookie. So I'm like, man, I'm so like, I'm I was just so hurt and disappointed because in my mind at the time, like I'm the odd man out. Sure, like there's no way that they're drafting him to replace anybody other than me. Even though he played middle linebacker in college, and we we got a middle linebacker, right. off, a we pro got a Bowl pro Bowl or, middle yeah, linebacker yeah. in John right. Beeson, so there's no way he's gonna replace Beast. And they had just paid James, and I had to take a pay cut <laughs> to even stay on the team. So I'm like, yep, like dang, this is the business side of the NFL kicking in again. But that was one of those times where I went back to my Georgia days, where I had to prove all over again that I belong. Mm-hmm. I, I changed the way I rehabbed my knee. I went to a different doctor to get it done. I've done everything on my end to be present. So for me, it was all about now going out and not re-injuring my knee, changing the, the rehab process, changing the overall workout structure of what I did as a player. So every single week I did something that worked to strengthen my quads, my hamstrings, and to keep my knee strong. There was not a single week for the remainder of my career that I did not keep my right knee strong along with making sure that I kept my left knee as strong. So I never wanted to create an imbalance. But I'm going to I'm gonna show these guys that went out and drafted this kid in the first round that they're not getting rid of me that easy. So <laughs> we started out. That year, I think we had the Democratic National Convention here at the time, and we had to fly down and, and work out and stay a week in Tampa before right. we got ready to play Tampa. And during that week, I was still playing gunner on this yeah, team. So I remember when you did that. So yeah. me and Captain Munlin, you know, we talked about that game, and I'll never forget this day. And this was one of those moments in your career where, you know, there's some doubt in your head and you're not really sure about what's going to happen, but there was no doubt in my mind that I was going to be the first guy down that field to make that tackle. And me and Cap had like a friendly bet, and I told him, like, I'm going to be the guy to get down there first. And I'm playing gunner. Like, normally the gunner position is dedicated to cornerbacks, wide receivers, you know, smaller, faster guys. But for me, I had been a gunner in the past, so I'm like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be the guy. I'm going to be the one. And that was the moment for me as a player that kind of signified me being back and me being okay. Because I went down full speed. As soon as the punt returner caught it, I <laughs> smacked him. And I think it, it kind of caught everybody off guard, but the whole team, like you see everybody just get excited for me because they knew what I had gone through. They knew – all of the work that had gone into just that little moment. Mm-hmm. But
but that ended up becoming a special season. I played sparingly to start the season, but when Coach Rivera made the transition to put Luke in the middle and then put me on the outside and put James on the other side, outside, and they ended up trading Beast away. Like, you know, we were devastated to lose John Beeson, but, you know, I never really understood how magical it would become with me working alongside Luke and, you know, what we were able to accomplish as as teammates, man, it, it was truly special, you know, to, to be talked about as one of the top tandems for a long time at the linebacker position was definitely, you know, it was a special moment, but it was something that people don't realize how much it almost didn't even happen. Because if all three of us are healthy going into that season and I never dealt with the ACL, who knows? They probably don't draft him. To if we ever draft maybe, Luke, yeah. you know. Mm-hmm. So it, I mean, it was it was one of those things that was destined. You know, I had to go through the ACL surgeries for them to even be willing to draft him, and then he gets drafted and becomes a surefire first ballot Hall of Famer, if you ask me, with the resume that he was able to put together when he was on the field. You know, people look at you know he didn't play long, but Calvin Johnson didn't play that long, but he still had a Hall of Fame career. Terrell Davis didn't play that long, but he had a Hall of Fame career with the time that he had. So it's all about, you know, just going out and showing and proving each and every time that you touch the field. And that's what it was about from that moment on to for me to show and prove that I belong. So every single day, it was all about that for me. Never letting the moment get wasted. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back. You and Luke really were the heart and soul of that defense for for many years. And one thing that tickled me a little bit was you're, you're pretty different. You were pretty different points in your life, and you just came from different circumstances. Sort of describe you guys were the odd couple there a little bit. It absolutely was, and you know it, it was it was something you know just to really watch you know how that relationship just developed because you know from. The first day that he came in to his just overall end of his rookie training camp, you just knew the kid was different, man. Mm-hmm. You knew that he was he was not only a special player, he was a special person. It, every single thing we asked him to do, it was never a, never a complaint, never a time where he rebelled or didn't want to do. It, it, he made it hard for us to, like, make – his rookie year hard on him. So, (laughs) you know, you try to have rookies that, you know, when you go to the rookie dinner, like you make them, like you make them pay for it because Mm -hmm. of some of the mistakes are the things that they did wrong over the course of their rookie year. And Luke might've had the cheapest rookie dinner that we ever had because (laughs) nobody literally did anything. How much did a rookie dinner cost in general? Man, uh, my rookie dinner was in the, in the twenties, like in the twenties of thousands of dollars, and it was only that high. It wasn't that high because I didn't do what I was supposed to do as a rookie. I did all of my rookie duties, but uh, <laughs> I ended up taking care of the the safeties and the cornerbacks and the running backs that oh, year. Wow! I yeah. allowed the running backs to go to my rookie dinner as well because you know some things happened with their rookie, Eric Shelton who's my neighbor now, but, um, you know, I took care of the the, the rookie – I took care of the rookie duties for the running back from a 
Ricky Dinner standpoint, and I I'll see. just leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's a big credit card bill when it comes. Yeah, it with was. 20, it was, but 20K. I, you know, yeah. it, it was. It was a part of the process for me. Right. You know, yeah. I, I know it's part of the tradition. You know, yeah. I, it was part of the tradition. I understood it, and it's just one of those things, man. You, you, it's it's like an initiation for for us as rookies, mm-hmm. and. If you were fortunate enough to be a first-round pick, then you should embrace yeah, that. you got some money. Yeah. yeah. Um, one more injury story. Tell me about playing in the Super Bowl with a broken arm. Well, every time I talk about this story, I tell people, we, my rookie year, we were able to make it to the NFC Championship game, and we had a bunch of injuries happen at the running back spot that I think ultimately made the difference in you know, some of the success that we could have had that year against Seattle. Um to have Deshaun get hurt, you know, we lost Steven earlier in that season. Nick Goins ended up going out of that game with a concussion, and we was left with Jamal Robinson at the time. So, you know, no knock on Jamal, but, you know, he wasn't our guy over the course of that season. So um, we ended up, Jake having to force the ball to Smitty in some tough situations against a really good um, Seattle defense. And, you know, it just kind of left us shorthanded in that game. So in my mind, though, I'm coming into this, and I'm like, they made it to the Super Bowl in 2003. We almost made it in 2005. Sure enough, by 2007, we'll get right back to the Super Bowl or in contention to be able to play for the Super Bowl, and that didn't happen, obviously. And to not have that opportunity again from 05 playing in the NFC Championship game to 2015, 11 years later, so it's in my mind, it's like there's no way that something could possibly happen that would cause me to potentially miss the Super Bowl. And sure enough, second quarter, I go out here having a phenomenal game, um, literally all over the field. Me and Luke both are, are just playing lights out. This is the Arizona this NFC the Championship NFC game. NFC Championship yeah. game Y'all against just Arizona. Destroyed them. Yeah. Man, we were having a phenomenal game. I was making tackles everywhere. I think I was. Midway through the second quarter, I think I had like six or seven tackles at that point, like just having a great game. And on one particular tackle, though, me and Luke are getting ready to converge on the tight end, Daniel Fells. And I don't know what made me once he – I saw that he jumped. I saw him jump, and we were getting ready to tackle him, and he jumped knee first. And the first thing I thought when he did it was to just put my elbow up and just catch him. And literally, as soon as my knee, his knee made contact with my elbow, I felt my arm break. I instantly just kind of went down. Once he went down and I saw that he was down, like, literally, I just kind of went down, took a knee. And the trainers came out. And I remember Ryan Vermeer asked me, like, what do you think? But I said, Ryan, it's broken. So we go in and sure enough, we get the x-ray and it confirmed, like, my arm is broken. But... You know, Pat Connor said, he was like, it is broken. You're right. He's like, but it's broken in a place to where we could do surgery at 6 a.m. and you could potentially play in the Super Bowl. And I'm like, what? What? <laughs> I'm like, how? He's like, it, it's really going to turn into a pain tolerance thing. Like, on what? I was like, well, I'm playing then. <laughs> so as soon as I get back out, and Luke was like, what do you think? And I think they captured this moment. And the concern is for Thomas Davis, who's on one knee. So what's up? Surgery in the morning. Okay, can you play? I'll be back. I ain't missing the Super Bowl. Are you crazy? 
Like they said that, you know, I can do surgery at 6 a.m. So, and it was a late game. Like they're like, you can't eat after 12 o'clock. So I remember us leaving the stadium and like rushing to, I think Waffle House to like <laughs> grab some food before 12 o'clock so that I could eat. And sure enough, we woke up early in the morning. We went to surgery and I remember falling asleep um, with Kelly being right there before I went into surgery. And I remember waking up to Luke standing over me. Mm. And he was the person that took me home from the hospital. Really? It was just one of those things, man, that that really spoke to the nature and the brotherhood that we really had, man, because he could have been doing anything, just having the opportunity, you know, to make it to the Super Bowl, just playing a phenomenal game the night before. And the next thing that he decided was important to him was to go to the hospital with his brother and bring him home from the hospital, man. So for me, I knew that I had to do everything that I could in my power to get back to be on the field with those guys. And, um, you know, it was it was a rocky start to it because when you have surgery on on this part of your arm and I had surgery on the honor, they put a, a, a titanium plate in and I had a bunch of screws with a bunch of stitches, but I had no grip. Like, and to play the linebacker position, you got to be able to shoot your hands, get off blocks. And, like, I, I couldn't even close my hand. But as the week went on, you know, the training staff, they did a phenomenal job of putting me on stem machines, working it for me, getting the movement back. And by the time we flew out to San Jose, like, I'm, I literally flew to California with my arm up like this the whole way. <laughs> like literally in the air the entire way Why? in California. Just what was that for? for just pain, I, I guess. It, does I, it felt it better for pain. Yeah. It was just I think they wanted the circulation to be able to continue to run the blood back towards the heart and not down to where it would swell up. So, man, we we go through that whole process. I get out and as we started practice that week throughout that week out there, like I didn't really practice early on in the week. But I'm over there punching the bags, like just, you know, feeling the strength and the grip coming back. And probably by the second, third practice, I'm starting to get reps. But I'm locked in and paying attention to the game plan, knowing everything that, you know, we like to do, but just kind of implementing it versus what they like to do. And they told me, like, it's going to be a pain tolerance thing. Literally, people ask me, were you on medicine? Like, what did you take? I'm like, I literally took the tour at all that I normally take before a game. And, like, that was it. I was on anything else but adrenaline from playing in the Super Bowl. And I played every snap defensively in the game. Did not miss a single snap in that game. I had forgotten that. And, really, I, I we did an interview like this with Greg Olson not too long ago. And he said in that Super Bowl, he said if you played him – I think Von Miller said something similar to this recently, but he said if you play if you'd played Denver ten times, you probably would have beat him seven. That you wouldn't have beat him every time, but you would have beaten him most times. You know, I think first and foremost, you know, I think if we played them ten times, we'd probably win seven. I wouldn't say we'd win nine or ten. I mean, but I think we'd win more than half. I think we were better. Do you agree with that? And what do you think went wrong in that Super Bowl? I think if we played Denver ten times, we. Sh- as that football team, we should have beat them 10 times. Mm. I think we just made too many mistakes, mistakes that we were not accustomed to making, in particular on the offensive side. But I don't, I don't feel like we played bad 
defensively, but I do feel like there were a couple of plays defensively that were uncharacteristic of this football team. I think, you know, Josh Norman got his hands on a couple of balls that we had seen him intercept all season long, Mm -hmm. and it didn't go our way. When they announced that Jericho didn't catch that ball, and to this day, Jericho caught it. It's bobbled and Kotchery, they say incomplete. Near sideline came in and he was the one who signaled incomplete. Kotchery looking to the sideline, telling the coaches, I got it. Dallas fans, I know you guys love the Dez caught it, but Jericho caught it. <laughs> there was nothing that showed the ball hit the ground at no point. I've gone back, I've watched that over and over. The ball never hit the ground. It should have been ruled to catch because we all know the very next play that happened. 18 carries a game. Mike Tolbert is in. He's on a wing to the right. And the Panthers have a third and 10. Here comes pressure, and they've gotten to him. The ball is out in the end zone, and it's recovered by Malik Jackson for the touchdown. So at the very least, if that's not ruled, if that's ruled to catch, then the play call is different on the very next play. So so the sack fumble touchdown, that never happens. It never becomes a thing. So that in itself changes the complexion of the football game. So, I mean, but, you know, it is what it is at this point. And, yeah. you know, you just you just as a defense, you got to go out and you got to you got to create extra plays. You got to create extra opportunities for the offense. And, you know, they did that better than we did on that day. And that ultimately was the difference in the game. Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's it's still hard to believe in some ways. I've rewatched some of it too, and I agree with you on Kotri. I, I can't believe that got called. That was that was a Peyton Manning call right there. <laughs> they we wanted want to Peyton to win we one. We want to do this for Peyton. <laughs> um, just a couple more, Thomas. We're almost done. This has been uh, wonderful. Um, this was a sad moment, but in 2018, you had to serve a four game suspension, and you called it by far one of the saddest days of your NFL career. So I just want to take a few minutes today to um, share some news with you guys that I received from the NFL. I was informed that um, I tested positive for a banned substance. Um, I was completely caught off guard by this. Um, I've never in any way done anything to try to intentionally cheat the game. And you wrote on social media at the time, please know that I'm not a cheater. So as you look back on that, how, how did that happen and how did you recover from it? We still, we still to this day have not learned what it was that triggered that failed drug test. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with that whole thing for me is I didn't do anything differently than I had done the previous five or six years. Same supplements, same pre-workout supplements mm-hmm. that I had taken, but you know, the NFL states very clearly to us as players, we are responsible for what it is. So whatever products we're using, we have to get them tested yearly. If you are a player that has been using the same things over and over, you get complacent, you get comfortable. You don't think that, okay, this same product needs to be tested. But what, what I've learned is these things are manufactured in labs that also have other products that are also being manufactured. Mm-hmm. So if, you have cross-contamination, it's a part of the process. I've literally, still to this day, never drank, never smoked in my life, always careful about what I put in my body, like always have been. And 
to be sitting there as a player that is now going to be judged on the outside regardless of what happened. I think everybody that understands who I am knows. Like, if you looked at my body structure, you could tell I wasn't a guy that was taking anything that was giving me an extra edge. But now everything is going to be brought into question. Well, oh, is that how he was able to come back from the ACLs? Like, stop it. Like, I literally have every single document of 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 evidence of me going in, putting their work in when I came back from that. So, you know, people on the outside are going to always have their own questions when they hear something. Instantly, oh, you're taking steroids. Well, I didn't get pop for steroid like that's not what triggered that's not yeah it wasn't it wasn't that it was literally i think an estrogen blocker or something like yeah nothing to that nature so i'm like instantly when it happens the first thing you start to think of as a player is you wonder how sure and then the next thing you instantly go into defense mode. You feel like you got to defend every single thing. Every and action you ever probably made. Listen, yeah. and what I've learned over the process is you're not going to be able to reason or rationalize with unreasonable people, no matter what. So you go out, you make your statement, you know the truth, and you stick to your truth. And that's it. And then you move on with your career. So you can't sit back. Just like a play on the field, you can't sit back – and allow this to define you as a player, as a person. If you know for a fact that you didn't cheat, if you know for a fact that you didn't do anything to try to create an edge, the only thing that I've done to try to ever create an edge as a player is work my ass off. Mm -hmm. That's it. That's the only edge I've ever wanted to create. And if I can't create it that way, then I'm not going to have one. <laughs> that's, that's just who I am as a person. That's who I've always been. And now to know that people can go and pull that up and that's attached to my name. That's, you know, I think to me that that was literally one of the toughest parts of my career as a player. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. I mean, that, like you say, Google is forever. But I think people who understand Thomas Davis and who he is, people in this area at least, know uh, what that would end up. Um, last thing before we close, and that is Jonathan Stewart said at your retirement ceremony, it's time for you to run for mayor, dog. And Cam Newton used to call you, quote, a Charlotte's sweetheart. So any political aspirations for Thomas Davis? Not at all. Not <laughs> at all. Listen, there, you talk about judgments. If you go into <laughs> yeah. the political world, you're, you're going to get judged every single day on every action, every step, every move you make. And I literally want no part of that. I get asked about that a lot because Stooge started that trend about mm -hmm. the mayor thing. And then I get asked from people all the time if I ever want to enter into the coaching world. You know, mm -hmm. I have a ton of respect for what coaches do. And one of my things as a player, when you're in a system so long where you know the ins and outs of the defense and what to expect, what's going on, other than learning the nuances of what other teams are going to do and, you know, what the game plan is going to be that week. I hate it being in the in the film room. I hate it being in the meeting rooms over and over doing the same thing, watching the same things over and over. Like, to me, take me out on the field and let me run, let me practice. Let me spend those hours doing those things opposed to sitting in the air conditioning 
watching film. I hated that. Interesting. So now coaches, wow. coaches have to be in there with us. They have to be in there before us, and they have to be in there when we leave. And I want no parts of that. No parts of that. I respect what coaches do more than anybody. Whether you look at college coaches, they have to do all of those things before, with, and after the players, and then they have to recruit. Oh, yeah. Then they're writing. They're calling people at night. No part of that. Mm. Now, for me, like I talked about at the beginning of this, I have an opportunity with my son and my nephews to really watch them go through this process and grow. And after playing 16 years in the NFL, I think I would be doing them a disservice if I made a decision to go into a coaching career and spend more time away from them. My son is going into his sophomore year along with my nephews. And at the very least for the next three years, I won't even entertain a coaching opportunity right now. Because mm-hmm. you want to be there for those. I years. want to be there. For, you don't get those back. Listen, I want to be there for every step, every part of this process that mm-hmm. he's getting ready to go to because he deserves that from me. What position is he? What does he play? Linebacker. There you go. He's 6'2, 210 pounds, going into his sophomore year right now at Weddington. And they have a game on Thursday. You know, I'm, I'm going to be there, I'm going to be present. One of the hardest things for me, you know, I wanted to be, I wanted to get into TV um, and be like a studio analyst and, you know, just be able to still talk ball, you know, just be around the game of football, have to study film, have to do those things, you know, on my own time that I really enjoyed doing and being able to do it on my own time. And that's what, you know, being a studio analyst, being able to, you know, talk about players and talk about football allowed me to do with the NFL Network and CBS last year. The only downfall of it was me being a rookie in that world. Mm. I had to fly out to L.A. This was my schedule. I flew to L.A. Friday morning at about 7 a.m. from Charlotte. And I would get there around 11 to 12, go to production meetings, and then we would have have a podcast that I had to do at 2 o'clock. And then we were on air at five o'clock their time. So no, four o'clock their time to five. So that was my hour of show. But literally, that was the exact same time that my son was playing. Ah, yeah. So I'm literally on miss them all. They have this website. um, I think it's NFS. NFHS. Yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking about. So NFHS. I have, yeah, yeah, I downloaded the app. So I'm sitting on air watching their games. <laughs> like I'm literally watching them play like in between segments, like, yeah. like still being able to capture their games. But I had to take those times. So then after the show was over, I would go back to the hotel for probably about three hours and then take the red eye back to Charlotte that same night. Oh, Every Friday, this is what I did. And then Saturday morning, I would get here about 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. I would be home for a few hours. My daughter was cheering every Saturday. I would go watch her cheer, come back home from her her games, watch Georgia play, lay down for a couple of hours. 6 o'clock, I would fly from Charlotte to New York, spend the night in New York, 
wake up at 5.30 in the morning, do CBS morning show tops, and then fly back to Charlotte at one o'clock after the show was over. So I'm on the plane trying to watch Panther games on the way home so I could talk about it on the show that I was doing with them. So it's- Oh, exhausting. It it, it was fun though. Like I really enjoyed it because I explained like, this is the opportunity that I wanted to do. And I took a year off. I didn't do anything for a whole year. And the opportunity came, but I wasn't expecting both of them to happen at the same time. Mm -hmm. But if they happen at the same time, I'm not going to say I don't want to do one or the other. I want to take advantage and see, you know, what works. And for me, it was it was a great opportunity to be able to do that. And I got to work two days out of the week while still being a dad and being a part of what my kids had going on, minus being present for my son's game unless they played on a Saturday or a Thursday night. And then and that was the difference. Are you doing any of that this year or is it? I guess the streaming service is just really killing everything right now from a TV standpoint. So seems to be yeah. the economics just I'm told that the economics just aren't there right now. Um, NFL Network said they loved what I was able to do with them. And as soon as something changes economically, they're going to bring me back. We'll see what happens with that. And plug your uh, your 1058, though. Tell us a little bit about your restaurant yeah, or so, sports bar what so, do you call it exactly yeah so it, it's a sports bar and lounge so this yeah you know 1058 was something that that uh, opportunity that came about um you know just for me learning a lot about people you know you, you you think you know people and you learn that no matter how long you know them you never really know who people really are so you can't go into business with everybody and that was something that i learned mm-hmm. even in this city so it was good for me to be able to just just branch out and just kind of take that over on my own and, you know, just go my separate way with the person that I was working with. And I didn't have any restaurant or bar experience, so I'm still learning on the fly. I know what it takes to to be a good teammate. I know what it takes to um, operate in a space where you have to work well with others, being a good teammate. And, you know, that's just what I try to do for my employees. I want them to be in an environment that they enjoy coming and being a part of like I talked about with football I don't want them to feel like they coming to work if you feel like that then you're not going to want to be there I want them to feel like this is an environment that they can enjoy and that's just kind of how I try to run 1058 so when our fan base come in I want them to experience a place that they just enjoy being in not that they just tolerate being in Mm mm-hmm Well, Thomas, this has been uh, such a pleasure. Thank you for spending so much time with us. Scott, I appreciate you, man. Thank you for this opportunity. That's Thomas Davis. I'm Scott Fowler, and this is Sports Legends of the Carolinas. Thanks so much for listening to Sports Legends of the Carolinas, a production of the Charlotte Observer. This show is produced by Lou May Ali Sally, Jeff Siner, and Cotta Stevens. The sports editor of the Charlotte Observer is Lydia Craver, and the executive editor is Raina Cash. Remember, you'll find much more about this interview and about all of our guests, including Steph Curry, Roy Williams, Dale Earnhardt Jr., and Don Staley, in our Sports Legends book. Pre-order your copy now at sportslegendsbook.com. For lots more sports content and to continue supporting this kind of work, please visit charlotteobserver.com and consider a digital subscription and connect with me on Twitter at Scott underscore Fowler or email 
at sfowler at charlotteobserver.com. See you next time.